Hello there, welcome back to MLEX's weekly podcast covering the top regulatory stories from around the globe. I'm James Paniki from MLEX's Asia-Pacific Bureau. It's great to have your company. Now, like any good murder mystery, the demise of ABLV Bank of Latvia has left us with a chalk silhouette on the sidewalk. The bank's demise is in fact one of the few things that we know for sure. But who committed the crime? What's the identity of the institution that shoved the lender over the cliff? There are plenty of suspects, but identifying the culprit is proving a challenge. It has raised interesting questions about Europe's oversight of financial services as well. Jack Schickler is standing by in Brussels. He'll walk us through that banking whodunit in about 10 minutes' time. First up, though, the EU's new plan to scrutinise foreign subsidies will give the bloc's executive and regulator, the European Commission, broad discretionary powers. The Commission will be able to veto acquisitions, block foreign companies from winning public contracts and even force asset sales. Now, China isn't mentioned by name here, but it's no secret that much of the fear in Europe over what's seen as unfair competition on the part of companies backed by the Chinese state lies at the heart of these new powers. To complicate things further, there are also national security considerations bubbling away in the background. Of course, there's an argument to be had as to whether this new push is legitimate. There would be those who say that what the EU is bristling at is legitimate competition coming from abroad. Nonetheless, this is the discussion that's unfolding in Europe at the moment, and it's one that our senior M&A correspondent in Brussels, Natalie McNellis, has been grappling with, and she joins me now. Um, Okay, Nat, just tell me something about this latest move against foreign subsidies. What, uh, What do we need to know here? Well, it was back in June of 2020 that the EU put out its white paper on uh, foreign subsidies. And the motivation behind it was to be able to give the the Commission a tool that would allow it to intervene when it sees a company that has received a sizable subsidy from its government and is using that subsidy in some way that uh, it considers distorts competition in the EU market, meaning like maybe it could be that they they got money which makes it easier for them to buy a particular company or um, they got a lot of a big hunk of cash and that made it easier for them to expand into a different market. Um, and the idea is that it would give the EU the tools to be able to counteract what they consider to be unfair competition and, as they keep uh, repeating, is their mantra, level the playing field. So that is the underpinning political debate, but what are the, the, what's the substance of the issue as it stands today? Well, the issue is the EU has always been sort of annoyed or um, dissatisfied with the fact that there's very strong state aid control inside Europe. You know, it's really difficult for a company to get away with Uh, taking a handout from its government. It will be found out and it'll have to pay it back. And so there's this really strong constraint on being, uh, let's sort of, bankrolled by your government inside Europe. And there's always been a sense of dissatisfaction that foreign companies didn't play by the same rules. They weren't constrained in the same way. And so they could get handouts from their governments. And that made it possible, in theory, for them to compete in a way that wasn't fair on the EU market because they had deep pockets. So let's imagine that they were in a bidding war for a particular company. 
they would have re- more resources than an, than your average uh, company that's playing by market economy rules. Uh, so that was, you know, another thing was uh, public procurement contracts. If it was to build, let's say, a, a, a new bridge or um, uh, to bid for uh, HS2, the high-speed train uh, network in in the UK, they would have a leg up because they'd have the backing of their government. And the feeling was this is not fair, this isn't a level playing field, and it's distorting the internal market, and we should be able to stop that. We shouldn't be powerless to stop that. Mm. Now, these arguments all sound fair and reasonable. How how are these arguments being received in Europe at the moment? There are two sides to the coin. I think if you look at it from the perspective of the Europeans, um, European companies, they say, ah, alas, finally we have something. We have a, a new uh, way of fighting back. And so they say, well, you know, this is this is great and it's only fair. It's a, it's not a question of getting a, an advantage. It's a question of just, you know, leveling the playing field and making it fair. From the perspective of foreign players in the European market, they say, well, hey, you know, you've already got a lot of trade remedies. You've got anti-dumping and you've got anti-subsidies and you've got the World Trade Organization rules. Why do you need to tack one more thing, yet one more obstacle on us? Uh, And, you know, from the perspective of a foreign uh, entity that's trying to make an investment, they say, you know, this is just, again, another disincentive for us to invest in your economy. Mm. Now, in other jurisdictions where similar conversations are unfolding at the moment, it is all about China, although uh, I suppose China is never mentioned by name. Is that also the case in Europe? Yeah, it's, it is funny. It's like a, um, you hear the conversations and they really very pointedly um, refuse to mention China, but it is about China. There is a hyper uh, fear and insecurity about China. And I think part of it has to do with China has a uh, China has a strategy. You know, they've got a, a the Belt and Road uh, plan. They've got a strategy for the future and for where they want to be. And this makes Europeans very nervous because they say, wait a minute, you know, what's their long-term plan? Is this all part of a long-term plan to dominate? Um, and I think that's an insecurity that is making Europe sort of get its back up when it comes to China. And China is a huge investor in the EU. I mean, there's also been some very high-profile Investments that have been controversial. You know, China bought uh, the the port in Athens. They bought Piraeus. Uh, Costco bought Piraeus uh, port, and that raised a lot of questions. You know, what is our security if uh, if our port is owned by a Chinese entity? So far, so good. There haven't been any problems, but it still raises some worries. And you know, they bought Pirelli, uh, the tire maker, and these are ordinary course of business events. But I think that Europeans are, they want to look a little bit, little bit more closely at the overall implications and be able to act if they want to. Mm. Well, what can the EU do if it finds that a company has benefited from a subsidy? What recourse is available to, uh, to local companies? Well, the thing is that they can look and see if the company has been uh, subsidized and they say, hey, that's, you know, this company has received money from its government, and so it's trying to participate in, a, in an acquisition. It's looking to buy an, a company in Europe, and we want to look carefully at whether or not that acquisition has actually been bankrolled by the foreign government. 
um, and we can block that acquisition if so. And so that's one very mighty tool is to be able to actually block an acquisition. Um, the same thing with public procurement. They could say, wait a minute, we, are, we see your bid in this, uh, in this tender offer and it's unusually low. Something is, something is wrong with that bid and um, we think that you should be barred from this, this procurement and you might even get barred from future uh, procurements too. There's more sort of threatening, uh, let's say, language in the proposed uh, legislation that talks a little bit about if a company is behaving on the market in a particular way, they might open themselves up to sanctions, um, which are not completely specified. They might have to give access to the um, entity that they've bought. Like, for example, imagine that you talk about the port in Athens one of the um, repercussions could be, okay, you're allowed to buy that port, but you've got to allow access to uh, European mm. companies. That takes us down the path of discussing behavioural undertakings, which we, as mm. we've discussed before, antitrust enforcers uh, across the world tend to not favour, but that is something that's been discussed quite seriously, right? Well, yeah, I think, you know, just thinking about it out loud, it's in a way... One of the problems with behavioral undertakings is that the the government says, "Hey, I don't really want to monitor this thing for the the rest of my life. It's not my, uh, you know, I don't have the resources to do that." But here, if you think about it, if there's a behavioral uh, undertaking, like for example, you have to give access to the port, it's not really the authorities that are going to have to monitor it. It's the companies who will say, "Hey, hey, I, you know, I I have a right to this." So. I think that it might actually work better um, in this context than it does, for example, with a merger remedy. Okay, so this is where we stand uh, today. What are the next steps in this process? Well, you know, the legislation is in course, and usually, you know, it's it's now um, in the process of being, you know, the wrangling between the parliament and the council. And the thing is, though, there's a lot of will to get this through, and there's not a lot of pushback. You know, the the Europeans tend to be relatively united in the um, in the belief that this is a necessary piece of legislation, that it fills a gap. And so I don't see much resistance inside Europe. And the people who are speaking out against it don't really have uh, standing, let's say. They don't have a leg to stand on in Europe. They they make their points, but they're not a part of the... They're not in the in the room where it happens. So I think that we're moving forward, and the commission in particular has expressed very um, openly that they see this as a priority and they hope to get it done by the end of 2021. Natalie, thank you so much for uh, following the story for us. It's been great talking. I'll catch you again soon. It's my pleasure. Thank you very much. Natalie McNellis is a senior correspondent with MLEX and she covers mergers and acquisitions from Brussels. Natalie's analysis of the new measures, written with Nicholas Hurst, is at our website for you to enjoy. MLEXMarketInsight.com. That's M-L-E-X MarketInsight.com. Just head for the News Hub tab where you'll be able to find a sample of some of MLEX's best reporting and analysis. Coming up next, who killed Latvia's ABLV bank? And you can subscribe to MLEX's weekly podcast on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud and Stitcher. You may be presented with the opportunity to leave a review. Please do so and help us spread the word. 
James Paniki with you. Thank you for making it this far. Now, back in February 2018, the US Treasury Department's Financial Crimes Enforcement Network issued a finding that identified ABLV Bank of Latvia as an institution of primary money laundering concern. The allegations were that ABLV had institutionalised money laundering as a pillar of the bank's business practices while doing business with high-risk shell companies and other risky customers. Those were serious allegations and the bank later collapsed. That's all clear enough. Yet the fate of ABLV is now weaving its way through European courts. Why, I hear you ask? Well, because in 2018, the European Central Bank declared that the lender was likely to fail as a result of the money laundering scandal. That was arguably a self-fulfilling prophecy. A statement of that kind would be enough to knock out of the game most serious players. The bank's investors wanted to get to the bottom of that declaration, raising a basic question, in their minds at least, who killed ABLV? Jack Schickler is a senior financial services correspondent for NLEX and he's been following the court case and he joins us now from Brussels. Now Jack, we should say up front that ABLV and its investors lost that lawsuit against the ECB, so that sounds like a significant setback for the Latvian bank, right? Yes and no. Uh, It's a bit more complicated than that, in fact, because sure, I mean, the bank would like to get redress for this collapse that left its owners in a lot of trouble. Uh, Bank collapses are expensive. But it's actually, in legal terms, also a first attempt to unpick exactly what's going on um, with this highly complex regime the EU has developed for dealing with failing lenders, um, which is a regime called Resolution. Um, And it's relatively new. It hasn't really been tested in the courts. um, And it's not incredibly well written, uh, the law. So um, lots of people don't seem to know what it actually says and who does what when. So I think of it as a bit like a detective story, um, because we know this bank has collapsed. uh, And we know some of the suspects. There's the European Central Bank um, that has a role. It has to say when it thinks a bank is about to fail. There's another Brussels-based agency called the Single Resolution Board, which decides whether it would be in the public interest to uh, restructure the bank. Um, And then you have the European Commission, you have EU member states who also have a role, you have national resolution and supervision authorities, Um, you have a whole cast of characters aboard this Orient Express, and it's not quite clear which of them is the one that actually does the deed and, um, and shuts the bank. So, you know, the bank did collapse, But we don't know who was holding the weapon and uh, who had the motive, means and opportunity. And that's what the EU courts quite painstakingly are now trying to determine. Um, And the case last week is just one step in that journey. Um, So they've said essentially um, when the ECB said this bank is in trouble, it's about at risk of failure. That wasn't a legal act. That wasn't saying in effect that didn't cause the bank to fail in a legal sense, um, even though it obviously had a very um, undermining impact on on public confidence. Um, So, you know, if it's not a legal act, you can't challenge it in court. And that makes quite a lot of difference to the the angry creditors who would like their money back. All right. So a lot of bank failure occurred during the 2008 crisis. At the time, there were plenty of politicians saying that this would never happen again, it should never happen again, using taxpayers' uh, money. Hasn't that particular problem been addressed and fixed yet? 
Well, uh, they will tell you that it has been fixed, that this resolution framework that we have now is a response to that 2008 crisis where there were very politically unpopular measures taken to rescue banks using taxpayers' money because policymakers just felt they had no alternative. So now they have this regulation and other jurisdictions have similar regulations. In the EU's case, it's not a quick read. If you printed out the main law, it would it would take 207 pages. So please don't do that for the environment. Um, <laughs> plus, uh, there's separate regulations creating the single resolution board. There's another law saying exactly when and how you can ensure bank deposits. There's state aid guidelines um, setting the boundaries for the public bailouts and so on. And this this main 200 page law, the Bank Re- Recovery and Resolution Directive, it's called, is so complicated um, that uh, the EU passed it and then national government said we we don't actually understand this law and then the commission had to produce uh, I think twice some 30 page clarifications explaining the answers to the questions uh, that national resolution authorities had about the law um, that's how complex it is uh, and just a sign of how many legal cases you might now start to see about it this complexity obviously does create a problem. It means banks like LB, ABLV can get caught in limbo. Um, so a really weird thing happened to it uh, when it collapsed. The EU said this bank is failing, uh, but it's too small to need a public rescue or to need um, need some kind of artificial rescue. And then uh, the only option left to it was to go to national courts, which in this case also happened to be in Luxembourg because it's the um, the Luxembourg arm of the bank. But the Luxembourg court says, no, we don't agree. We're not going to launch bankruptcy proceedings because we don't see the evidence that the bank is collapsing. Um, so it was neither able to continue as a going concern uh, because it had its confidence undermined by its own supervisor, uh, but nor could it actually be wound up in the insolvency courts because the national courts disagreed with the assessment. Um, so that's, you know, it's continuing as a zombie bank, effectively, that, that can neither neither live nor die. And in other cases, you've seen um, in all these rules that I've just cited, there are essentially as many loopholes as there are banks. So some banks are publicly owned and have got extra capital from their state backers. Um, others have gone into insolvency and got huge amounts of public funds in insolvency proceedings. Others have got support from de- funds intended to guarantee um, account holders' deposits. Um, we've seen cases about all of those over recent years. Um, and it would be a bit too soon to say that the era of public bank bailouts is over. Now, you're painting a picture in which the courts, as much as lawmakers, get to decide on all of this. I'm wondering if leaving judges as the ultimate arbiters here might be seen as problematic. Well, clearly it's not ideal. Clearly you'd want everyone to know exactly what their risk is, what their liability is um, when when they're buying shares in a bank, for example. Um, So far, there have been no huge surprises from courts in this area, I'd say. Um, But as I've said, the law isn't terribly well written. And in any situation where billions of euros uh, is on the line, it's bound to lead to litigation. You just don't write down shareholders' uh, uh, holdings uh, to the tune of billions of euros um, and expect them not to call their lawyers uh, in quite an angry way. Um, The one case that has actually proceeded to EU resolution where the bank hasn't just been allowed to collapse was Spain's Banco Popular. 
uh, and that led to over 1,000 cases in the EU and Spanish courts, which gives you a scale of just how, how, how big and complex these things can be. Um, and understandably, given the sums of money involved, um, and and that's not the only one that's led to um, that's led to, to court cases. There's the collapse of Latvia's PNB banker, the Austrian bank uh, formerly known as Meinl, uh, Malta's Pilatus, which had its license withdrawn after a money laundering scandal. One notable one that's also recently gone to the EU courts is Italy's Banca Carrigi, where the ECB is being sued for having said the bank was okay for many years and then suddenly saying it wasn't as though that would give a kind of false sense of confidence in the bank's performance. And the person, interestingly, bringing this case is actually the former manager and vice president of the bank, um, multimillionaire Vittorio Malicalza, who's a kind of Italian road and steel magnate. Uh, So he's effectively, he was the former manager of the bank, and he's saying the ECB gave people false confidence that the bank uh, was a good bank when actually it was about to collapse. So so in a a way, that's that's the opposite of of what's going on here in the the most recent Latvian case. Uh, Indeed, uh, indeed. And it seems uh, to me a bit cheeky to say to supervisors, you should have been ensuring this bank was well run uh, when you're its vice president. Uh, But, you know, this is this is a hugely complicated area of law um, where neither regulators nor banks are going to get everything right. So all of this obviously is is very messy with all of these different cases bubbling away in the background. Uh, are there any prospects on the horizon that uh, this could be tidied up? Sure. I mean, I think we're not the only people who've realised this is all a bit messy. Um, lots of people think the regime isn't working. Um, cases like ABLV just go to show it's not clear enough. Um, no bank should end up in that kind of situation where it just doesn't know what it's doing. Even though the laws are relatively new, uh, they're going to be rejigged uh, in a proposal due from the Commission later this year. So that's going to look at um, overhauling um, the Bank Recovery and Resolution Directive, the laws on deposit guarantees. Um, and the Commission's also going to look at its state aid guidelines for banks, which are introduced after the crisis um, in recognition of the fact that some banks did need state support to maintain financial stability. Um, so that is going to be another hugely complicated reform. If I were a betting man, I'd say that 200 pages of law that I already cited is going to, if anything, get longer because I think there's going to be more exemptions, more rules. Um, and more extra wrinkles in the law. Um, so don't expect a single all-encompassing set of legislation anytime soon. Okay, more reading on the horizon there for MLEX reporters, obviously. Jack, it's been a pleasure talking. Thank you so much for uh, taking the time. Thank you. Jack Schickler, Senior Financial Services Correspondent for MLEX in Brussels. Jack's analysis of this case is a fun read and it's ready for you to check out. It's titled ABLV Judgment Reveals Clues in the EU's Bank Crisis Whodunit. Just go to mlexmarketinsight.com. That's mlexmarketinsight, all one word, dot com, and click on the News Hub tab. Sadly, that's all we have time for today. Luckily, though, we'll be back in your feed next Friday at more or less the same time. From me, James Panicki, and everyone at MLEX and LexisNexis, it's been great fun. Thank you so much for listening. I'll see you again very soon. Bye for now. Mm-hmm.